The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Deborah Allen. Deborah is a counselor, educator, artist. She also is the screenwriter for Jane the Movie, a feature film now in development about how music and poetry anchor a 15-year-old girl in the face of sexual violence, family upheaval, and change she cannot control. As a rape survivor artist and counselor, Deborah teaches workshops that nurture the development of a creative inner life. Currently, she's working with 20 artists to perform Fire in the Heart, a stage piece including gospel, hip-hop, classical music, spoken word, poetry, and dance that explores how the arts can serve as a catalyst for healing trauma and grief. She's been teaching midlife professionals in the healing arts for the last 25 years with an emphasis on depth psychology and trauma repair. She teaches in the USA, Europe, and Japan. Between 2010 and 2013, five of her closest people died. Mom, dad, sister, sister-in-law, and therapist. Welcome, Deborah. Hi. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm so happy to have you on the show. We've had such nice conversations leading up to it. And I'm, I know, I'm huh? Really... We're both artists doing this work, which is fun. <laughs> yeah, well, um, that's become more and more of a focus of mine is how people use the arts to support themselves through grief. And as you can imagine, I pay a lot of attention to, I, I guess I'd say, voices of grief that I haven't heard before, you know, very unique expressions. And so your blog post about coping with all those losses really caught my attention. Thank you. I wonder if you can tell listeners a little, uh, just fill out that picture a little more about those. It was under three years, yes? Right, from uh, 2010 to 2013. Um, can you can you uh, describe a little more that time in your life and what was going on? You know, my many, parents, many things, obviously, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. My parents were in their nineties, and um, so those you know were, were deaths in the in the right order of things. My dad died in December. Um, my mom died in April, and then um, my sister was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died in October. My sister-in-law uh, had a recurrence of lung cancer and died a year later. And my therapist died a week after my sister-in-law. So it really so it was... was boom, boom, boom. And um, 
two that we expected, and I was, you know, deeply involved with, with walking them through and being there when they died. Um, and the last three were not on my timing. Mm. Well, and also, um, for me anyway, uh, my father died in a similar way. He, he fell, um, had a traumatic injury and, and never, uh, um, couldn't communicate after that and died a few days later. And that was so stunning having walked people to their death in an expected way, being very involved with cancer. Right. Um, which is kind of a, of a, um, if you're, if you're looking, uh, it's a process as opposed to a moment. Right, um, right. So, yeah, we, we think- had, so we, out of my five, we had two. Um, my dad had a, also fell and, and did not wake up. And then my therapist was killed in a bike accident. So those were the ones that I had sort of much less process and uh, much less body, I mean, much more body shock. But once again, my right. dad, you know, when they were in their 90s, they were ready. You know, my therapist was in his 50s, not so much. Right. Well, and the it's uh, I I guess it's a bit hard in my experience to if you have a number of losses in a brief period, it's it's pretty hard to differentiate what's affecting you, and, and yeah, you know what's exactly going on. It's not a discrete kind of uh, oh, I'm feeling this about that. Uh, is does that resonate with you? That it, it really does, and it feels everything felt. Um, both completely silent inside and like something was tearing and I couldn't stop it. It was like there was a tearing in the fabric of my identity that as they left and I, and they kept going and I was still, you know, as I think all people experience grief and death, which we all do, but there's, there's that sense that everything else is going on like normal and you're not. And I think that was my most disorienting place was that they were, dying and I was considered normal and I, there was nothing inside of me that, I mean, I was really in a far country. I, I had not been there. Be, I've been in a lot of traumatic situations, but I had never had that level of loss on top of itself like that. So I didn't have a way to uh, orient and I've been in war zones. I mean, I've, it's so interesting. My life has had a lot of exposure to trauma, but this one, because they were so close and I wasn't psychically in some way, I, I, I just didn't know how to orient. I think that's the best way to say it. It was like being lost at sea. Yeah, well, you've used that word a few times already, orient. And I, that seems a very a very meaningful word to me that if people can make meaning of what's going on, yeah. They, you know, that they um, do better. We all do better. Uh, I don't know if that's true worldwide or just true in Western culture. That's pr- kind of linearly oriented. But uh, it's true that when your when your capacity gets overcome and you don't know which way is up, it's very very disorienting. And because, well, I, I know from living in Africa that, that the, my friends there, when, when someone dies, you go home, you go, you go, you know, back to your village and you stay a month. Mm. And so you're, you're, you know, dramatically changed out of your normal life. Everybody is there together. 
And that we don't have here to start with. And then B, when you have five people die so quickly, that's a lot of months that I would have been taking off. And honestly, it would have been better for me to have taken five months off and, and paid attention to each person. But I, I couldn't. And I was working. And I, yeah. So I think well, a and lot also, of your listeners go through this, too. It's like we carry on. Yes. And, uh, and I have to say, I've, uh, when my, my wife died in 95, I did take that time. Good for you. And and then because I had known it was coming and I kind of made some deals with myself, you know, because <laughs> right. I knew it was going to just completely change the landscape of my life. And I and I didn't experience that as many things leading up to her death and my grief were very, very painful. But that year felt uh, nourishing in some way mm. because mm. I was giving myself everything I wanted and needed, whereas some losses since, there's been a difficulty of not having enough space and, you know, my brain kind of shutting off at certain points. Yeah, that's a a good, that's a very good description. There's not enough space. The brain, there's, and for us in our family, we were going from one, you know, critical hospital room to another. So we were always in that. And those of you who've been through it know in that smell, in that, you know, concern, in that disruption of schedule, in that, you know, heightened reality as people died. And, and so I, my body just never came down. Usually I can find a rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, I, I was completely out of rhythm. And that, I think, is what I think. You know, when you and I met over this article I wrote about, about watching television, I think that, you know, TV actually, this, what I ended up doing ended up putting me back into rhythm. And, and I don't know what else I could have done because I also had extraordinary helpers who told me, you're not crazy. You, this is too much. You, you know, yes. you're, not, you're not okay. You're correct. You're not okay. And I actually needed people to tell me that because, once again, on, in our culture, we just keep moving, going on. From the outside, it looks like you're fine. And the other factor I really, I really um, felt in reading your post is the the factor of being someone who is already in a helping profession. Uh, right. You know, I who, should know better. <laughs> right. Or, or at least it's it's mystifying that that it so uh, pulls you so out of your out of your um, usual patterns. And uh, in the end, I, th- I think that has really helped me with my work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't have the idea that people can just be okay, but um, because I, I know what it's like for me. Right. But I wonder if you'd share that, uh, the, the part of your blog post, which first brought you to me, uh, that starts uh, talking about humility. <laughs> okay. That seems um, on time right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perfect. So this is um the original blog post that I wrote was called NCIS Saved My Life and uh it went on and was published in the Elephant Journal as How an American Crime Television Series Saved My Life. So the opening of it is um humility comes to all of us, sometimes in weird ways. Mine came like a great cosmic wind. 
in the form of an iPad dropped with a thud from a sky full of grief. Most people will glance briefly at our travel photos, but stories about how our loved ones died must be told only once, quickly, and with as few details as possible. Talking about dying brings up weird, unmanageable emotions. For example, there are those ugly moments of hope to turn to shame-filled hostility when we think somebody finally wants to hear our story. Maybe at last we will be relieved of its twisty, dark burden. But just as we form our first trembling word, the terrible other charges desperately into the opening with an equally sad and heroic tale, and we discover that surges of rage are the new normal. My dramatic entry into the secret club of All My Friends Are Dead guaranteed me a place of permanent silence. In December 2010, Dad fell and hit his head. He died. In April, Mom let herself stop eating. She died. In October, my sister's pancreatic cancer took her, and she died. A year later, in November, my sister-in-law's lung cancer won, and she stopped breathing. She died. A week later, a truck hit my young and vigorous therapist on his bicycle, and he died. I do counseling for a living and am a trained hospice volunteer. I know, really, I do, that we all share this totally upside-down country where everything familiar disappears. Friends told me that their only wish was to have time go backward even for one more day. Even with the pain, with someone they love wearing diapers, they would choose one more crappy non-conversation with a formerly intelligent loved one. So many of us have lost and lost again with courage and grace. One thing that just uh, took the bottom out from under me with that is that um, the person I'm assuming you were trying to process all of this with, uh, one of the people, your therapist then became one of the people that you lost. That was horrific. Uh, which, which just seems so um, uh, ripping. Yeah, that was her. And, you know, it was really weird. As our last conversation was the day before he died, and we were talking about a film that Robert Redford had been in um, where he's on the boat and he has the big storm and... At the end of the movie, there's a, a, a scene where there's sunlight coming on the water, and he's in the water, and he reaches up his hand toward the light, and you don't know if he lives or he dies. Mm. And um, my therapist and I were talking about it, and, and he said, well, what do you think happened? And I said, I don't know. And I, he said, I think he died. I think that, um, that we have to be ready to die. And he died the next day. Ooh. And I just thought that was extraordinary for him and I, too. It's like just, we were in that territory that he then had to travel. Weird, huh? I yeah. feel so sad when I talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I had, I had a, a very important uh, therapist, teacher, person in my life die exactly a year before my wife died, and, and it brought that back mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, a, in a way that's, more assimilated in my everyday life, <laughs> you right. know, yeah. um, but just that, that feeling of, and I had, I had kind of known it was coming for no reason. And he, he was not sick when I, but I just felt it was going to, he was going to leave and he, wow. and he did. Yep. 
So, you know, it's um, those kinds of uh, loss of place to sort things is a particular kind of loss, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and I actually, I haven't been able to, um, to go into regular therapy again since he died. I think I'm going to try to next year again. Because I can feel, even now it's been two years, I, I can feel the parts of me that are still frozen, and it's like I have no affect. Mm. And um, I'm proud of myself. I'm coping. I'm creating art. I'm, you know, I'm walking. Um, I love my children, my grandchildren, my husband, my friends. You know, I'm, I'm busy and, and active, and yet there's still some part of me that hasn't come back yet. Well, how we how we retrieve ourselves, I guess, or our new selves, how we recognize our new selves, it's it's, it's a forever uh, process, is for me yeah. anyway. Is that yeah, uh, right. how you look? That, how I'm you not going to be also? the same person. I'll, I'm someone new again. You know, I I think uh, we're we're almost out of time for this segment, but I think there's. Something here. There's there's a book. Um, I think it's called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I actually mm-hmm. read it read mm-hmm. it while my wife was sick. And the idea of that book is that all growth happens where you don't know what's happening. Right, <laughs> right, right at the course, edge. Yeah, we're talking about that a little bit too, aren't we? Just sort of yeah. Um, and, and that uh, another way to look at that in, in my practice is that at, at every great, you know, sort of turning of the wheel in our lives, there's always a dragon. You know, there's always some part of us that has to face something that, that is um, terrifying. That, that almost sounds like uh, the hero's journey. That's very hero's journey. I be- and it's been true for me. It's just been true, and it's helped me tolerate some difficult things, knowing that that the dragon, ah, there's the dragon. Yeah. Okay, that that's. Well, that's. I think you're you're talking in a way about making sense of an experience. Uh, The the thing about your post was that everything just seemed like cards thrown up in the air. Uh, Yeah. But that that sense that there's some kind of transformation happening is a way for me at least of putting some definition around that transformative process. I, that's how I feel too. It's that eventually there has to be meaning and I have to agree to that meaning. In, in good time. Yeah, in good time, <laughs> which is why it's nice to do a program about grief because believe me, it's in good time. He doesn't care what I think. It's taken its own sweet time here. If, if there's one message I want to get out there, it's grief tells you what to do. You don't want to tell what tell it what to do. So. I know, I know. That's been the most helpful thing. Grief, grief has its own rules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before the break, I'll just tell you that one of the things that that I found myself engaged with that totally shocked me in uh, the grief of realizing I would lose my my wife. I started reading endless murder mysteries. Oh, you and I are talking the same time here. I had never done that before and yeah. hadn't been interested whatsoever. There was some kind of fascination I had because it's one of the ways in society we can actually think about death a little bit. I think that's uh, true. I think that's true. 
Yeah. And we can regulate to a character. Exactly. Well, it's time for our first break. Uh, I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at voiceamerica.com. And you can find Deborah Allen at www.healersforum.com and www.jane-themovie.com, which we'll talk about as we go forward. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Deborah Allen, an author, screenwriter, film producer, blogger, uh, and therapist. Um, and uh, we, I think we were kind of talk, talking as we went out to break about what helps, and we sort of continued that during the break, um, what helps and what doesn't, I guess. Uh, you were you were mentioning on the break something you were uh, listening to on NPR yesterday, uh, C.S. Lewis. It was something that C.S. Lewis said, and and, I, and it was it was about faith. And he he talked about the you know the rope that that is the lifeline to our faith is just a rope to tie up a package until you're really tested, and then you find out if that if that rope is going to hold. And I just loved that. I thought, yep, he got it. He got it. Yeah, and that's an interesting uh, idea that. Our our faith and I, my experience is not necessarily in 
God in the classic sense, but faith in something that will hold us. Yep. Um, makes a makes a huge difference. Uh, and faith you know, there, over there, and over again for me that wholeness will reassert herself, which I think is why the arts is so helpful to me. Is that you know that at some deep place inside of me, I believe I will return, like to homeostasis. I will return to some kind of inner wholeness, and I I have faith in that. And um, even through this period where it's it's been. Uh, kind of dead affect, I, I believe that my passionate response to the universe will return. You know, I, I believe that my wholeness will reassert itself. And that's a good belief. That, that gives me meaning and, and um, it's useful. Absolutely. I was mentioning uh, during the break uh, this field of study, which I've talked on the show before uh, about, which is called post-traumatic growth. And they ha- they've been studying what changes in people when they change as a result of trauma, uh-huh. which apparently 30 to 90% of all people do, uh, you know, self-identify as having um, changed in some very important way. Right. They have the idea that the first time you have a very huge experience of loss or trauma uh, you might change a ton and create a, a a different frame of reference. This this does apply to me, I think, and that then you have that to depend on. And it feels like that's what you're talking about a little bit. You you have a deep belief that you will come back to wholeness, and that helps yeah. you in subsequent um, difficult times. I think for, you know, for me, because of my, I had trauma at an early age too, and it sort of, it creates the kind of the original tear. And, um, the way that, that, that I was able to navigate that and the helpers I found at that time, I think are the kind of the base note that continues to play even now with, you know, adult loss and trauma. Um, and and that and that's good to note that 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 fifteen year old was doing okay, you know she she had she developed something that was not malignant to deal with trauma and and I'm proud of her you know that girl inside mm-hmm. of me yeah that that somehow she was already working on um, keeping herself and finding things that could form a ground. Yes. And, and of course, you know, a lot, I mean, and I have to be, you know, completely, you know, candid here. I had, you know, way good enough parenting. You know, we had the problems that we had as, but, but I mean, I had an, a, a stable enough base so that when, when very bad things happened, I had enough, you know, good attachment and good, you know, something good enough. Um, and, and I'm, I'm very aware of the, the advantage that that is when you can, are continually traumatized. And a lot of us who've had a lot of early trauma, we continue to um, be people who experience trauma for reasons that are really complicated. Um, but as I've gone on through my life and traumatic events happen, I have, I've, I've changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this person now who, who went through all these deaths so close together 
is built on that 15-year-old. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, she, she used music and, and poetry and um, literature to survive, and I, I still do. I, I, I'm um, resonating with the word, word survival, which until you've gone through it might seem like a big word for what we're talking about, you know, as in life and death, but yeah. it can really, really feel that way. And, Pretty much. <laughs> uh, and there's a sense in which we do kind of temporarily die without ways to express and understand what's happening, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's personal and it's, it's collective. And so the collective, I think, right now is in, in pretty crazy time. And there's a lot of fear and kind of, you know, roaming anxiety going around. And I think that the arts are one of the ways that that can... Um, take enough shape to bring comfort. So it's not just free-floating, you know, panic and, and fear. Right. And and would that be some of where your current uh, projects, um, the the movie and the show, uh, show you're putting together, uh, do, they, do they have their genesis in that kind of idea that, that our traumas need expressing and that um, experiencing them together is helpful? Yeah. I, you know what I found, and I'm, this isn't new to anybody probably, but what's really worked for me and what I'm trying to do with Fire in the Heart and with my film is, is to see if I can outpicture um, what I believe happens internally is, you know, so, as above, so below sort of out can be also used in the collective um, concern and, and anxiety that's going on, which is, is not only hearing my, you know, not, not just hearing the story, but then, then taking that lump in the throat and, and having it become something transcendent so that I can have the experience of, um, of something new with something old. In, in neurobiology, they talk about that you have to, you know, find a, a, something to, to resonate to that's at a higher level than you're able to be at, and then that'll regulate your nervous system, and that creates new neural pathways as you, you resonate to something that's doing a little bit better than you are. And for me, um, you know, the sound of Mahalia Jackson or, or Leonard Cohen, for me, those were two voices that when I would hold on to them, they would... I would begin to regulate back to um, to a, being a person again, and not just you know a shocky rape. You know, someone mm. who's just been raped. I was, I was, I would, I would actually hold on to those voices as as though they were inside of me, um, talking to me. You know, talking to the part of me that had broken. And uh, I didn't need any, at that time, I didn't have anyone, so I didn't need anyone outside of myself except for, you know, a CD at that time or actually a cassette tape. I mean, I, I could get it right from the music or right from the poetry. I didn't, I could carry the people with me that I needed to heal me, to, that could help me regulate. Am I talking too much? Does that make sense? Not at all. It does, and it's part of what I love about radio, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know that uh, we're having this conversation here, 
and people can listen w- privately. You know, I think there is that place where we need to kind of um, have some solace that doesn't involve taking a chance on other people. And uh, that makes it a good time maybe for you to read this um, next passage uh, that that uh, I was going to have you share because it talks a little bit about the unhelpful things that other people try to do that um, just can can make you want to run away from other people in the midst of grief, even though you need that support. Could you uh, could you read that? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, okay, here we go. My family moved from death watch to death watch, and we coped, waiting to move along the continuum as written, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. People who love us continued to love us and made more casseroles. We continued to love them and tried not to talk too much. I pretty much stopped crying. One of my beloved nieces figured out a ritual I did not recognize at the time. All through the weeks her mother was dying, she'd head off into the dark wherever she went to watch TV and mumble, off to NCIS. I had no idea what that meant, but I was preoccupied with all the things we aren't discussing right now. Little did I know that God had begun working in mysterious ways. I knew I was not okay, seriously not okay, but I couldn't find words, and as I'd mentioned, my therapist was dead. I knew that people were basically trying to help. I understood, through a glass darkly, that my whole family was suffering too. I practiced loving kindness as best I could so I didn't snap at those who meant well. Pretty much no form of verbal reassurance helped me at all. Particularly difficult were, she, he is in a better place, or if you try, you can still contact them. And last, honor us because it was so obvious and I knew it and only felt shame when they said it. Everyone dies. It's part of life. Sometimes I would find a word or two to describe my state. It usually had something to do with feeling that there was a hole torn in the middle of the fabric of me. This was pretty esoteric and hard to follow up, so people stopped asking how I was. The story I made up, the ones I assumed others were thinking, centered around me taking too long to get over it, and so the less I said, the better. Another truly horrible thing I've learned about loss is that everyone else's life goes on. So my effective social conditioning kept me keeping on, and still I didn't cry. What I thought of uh, when I read that is uh, the way in which a, a, a grieving person, I think, can tell whether the person talking to them needs them to stop feeling or not. Um, you know, that kind of false comfort, I I think, generally comes from not wanting, uh, from being put off by the fact that you feel very bad. I expect that's true. I expect that my filter was even more off than that, was I really probably didn't want to talk about it either. So we were all, we were all in agreement. <laughs> you were all in agreement. <laughs> you don't want to hear my feelings, and guess what? I don't want to tell you. That's all I'm going to 
<laughs> you know, so I was, it was a pretty, it was a really good shutdown all around, <laughs> which is how I, I ended up with NCIS is because, you know, me, an iPad in the bed with a heating pad worked really, really well. I have friends who haven't heard from me in years, you know, and I'm finally calling them and saying, sorry, I haven't been talking to you, but everybody died. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I'm I'm remembering, too, the whole time that my, my wife was sick, and I've done it since, too. Uh, for some reason, um, if I was sort of constipated in the, in the tears department... Right, right. Uh, <laughs> the thing that helped was, was the movie Beaches. Oh, sure, yeah. That yeah. Midler movie. Uh, for some reason, that particular one would do it every time. And so if she would notice that I was kind of clogged up, she would actually say, beach is time. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know? and, that's great. And, uh, yeah, I know. I have a really corny one, too, besides NCIS, of which I have seen all of them. Um, but for me, it's, and it's still true, it's, it's a very corny, beautiful little movie called Love Actually. It's a chick flick, yes. but it's just lovely, and I, that's the one I watch. After she died, it was... Um, Truly, madly, deeply. Oh, that's yep, yep. That's good too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so funny. I, I mean, you know, the, and do people really? There, I've realized. Uh, you know, there are almost every movie that isn't a, a comedy involves loss. Well, yeah, some comedies do too, and so it's there is this kind of sense in which the culture is trying to. Uh, make up for what it's not inviting, in a sense. Yeah. You know, drama is always about loss of one sort or another, I guess. Yeah. But right. um, some are more deeply uh, allowing it, perhaps. Right, right. So I hope that this is giving, you know, some permission to our listeners too to follow their own instincts about what makes a space for the, all these feelings? It might not be a logical thing. I'll bet that you weren't, I'll bet you didn't know quite why NCIS was working at first. No, in fact, I didn't know how, why I was doing it until I wrote the blog. I mean, that's, it took two years to figure out why it was working. That's, so that, that's, that's very know, I waited two years to before I could create meaning out of it. Uh, this is a really familiar thing from talking to people week after week who've had some kind of experience like this, that at first you have no idea where you're going. You just know what, if you listen, you know what you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, I don't know what TV you watched before all this, but to be to be kind of watching the entire NCIS family of shows to start to finish and not know quite why that was compelling you takes a certain surrender, doesn't it? It does, and a certain lack of shame. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a really popular TV show, but, you know, uh, you know, my secret sort of chocolate was the People magazine. I mean, I had never watched that much television in my life and it was like just I my body just knew I, I I was not going to do anything else I was going to 
that was the thing that was going to let me rest. And so that's what I did. And thank God my husband was just incredibly supportive, you know, just he didn't come in the, you know, in the bedroom every night and go, are you doing it again? Um, So he 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 accepted that no matter why you wanted to do that, you just wanted to do it and that was okay with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't talking and I wasn't crying, so I don't, you know, he's very bright. <laughs> <laughs> and he was watching everybody die around me, so, I, yeah. Uh, she just oh, needs that's to how chill she's out. It. Okay. <laughs> she's not out, you know, shooting up heroin. She's here. <laughs> Things could be yeah. worse. Huh? But then oh. to discover that it, it was actually deeply meaningful let's let's come back and talk about that um after the break and in the meantime listeners you can go to my website at weatheringgrief.com two g's or the good grief host page and to find deborah allen you can go to www.healersforum.com and www.jane-themovie.com back after the break Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You want to have the highest quality of life possible, and you want to live as healthy a life as possible, so you can do everything you want to do. But there are all kinds of myths with regard to what's right, what's healthy, and what is best. Debunk that misinformation by tuning into Shattering the Status Quo with Dr. Michael Quast. You should be able to make your own choices with your health and your life. And you should be well informed to make those choices. Tune in every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Deborah Allen, counselor, artist, artist, and music producer who used episodes of NCIS to carry you through a period of multiple losses. And I think it would be great to start this section with the, um, the part of your, your blog about you know, very specifically about NCIS. Okay. <laughs> my, my show, my people. Your show, exactly. Yeah. During the last 18 months since the last of the great dying, I've watched all 12 seasons of NCIS, all six seasons of NCIS Los Angeles, and the new season of NCIS New Orleans. 
I can honestly say that a television show served as the loom to help weave back parts of me I thought were permanently lost to the void. Somewhere in that first year, I figured out something important about my seemingly weird and obsessive behavior. I had found a working family for me, a predictable group of people who were still in action, still fighting the good fights, and who repaired when they messed up with each other. It took me a while to figure out the second part of my nightly ritual, which meant struggling through another set of feelings somewhere on the shame spectrum. There's a lot of adrenaline on the shows, which kicked up my own stress response in a predictable way. With all my deadened feelings, a little kick of hormone and danger felt good when so little else did. Then I turned to watch the original NCIS, and there was Mark Harmon's Leroy Jethro Gibbs, the perfect character to hold all of my sadness and angst. He'd lost his wife and his child to murder. And here's what they do on NCIS that works as trauma therapy. He isn't particularly getting better. The hole in him remains. He just keeps working to build a bigger life around it. His relationships with other women fail. He builds things in his basement alone with a shot of whiskey. But he's created a different kind of family at work, people who matter, people who love him. With that one character, one working story, a deeper frozen layer began to heal. As a trauma therapist, I know the following. I have known the following all along. The healing of trauma demands that we find a coherent narrative, a way to make sense of what has happened to us. Without knowing if we will survive, we must live through the intolerable intensity of I cannot bear this. We have to build strong enough inner worlds to test if the absolutely unbearable might begin to express itself in a more familiar world of feelings, recognizing hurt, suffering, anger. And finally, through some alchemical process that includes varying degrees of time, we have to find words or for people that do it visually, pictures. Words and pictures bring our awareness up to the high brain, the place that makes coherent patterns. Patterns create the potential for sharing, for coming out of isolation, for healing. Then, maybe, 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 we will be able to tell our story. However, this movement from intolerable to hurting to language is not neat and tidy. It does not care what we think. It does not conform to our plans. I was pretty much stuck holding intolerable down with all my might. I could not, would not feel what was there. I did not have words. If pushed to touch in there, I would go away. Gibbs and his family on NCIS served as an outpicturing of the secret hidden inner me, broken people with their lights on, and I could watch them whenever I needed them. That's that's just so familiar, that sense of beyond reason, finding finding ways to experience what's going on without being taken down in some way. Yeah, and without it, for me, it was like without having to move very much. <laughs> in the receptive mode. Well. And I still, I mean, I'm still, it's very hard. I've, it's taken me about a year to get back to exercising. I mean... Movement brought feelings, and feelings were not welcome. Mm, mm. 
And so television during that period, which when things were the most acutely impossible, was really helpful because I didn't have to move. I could let it come to me. I didn't have to prove anything. I didn't have to be smart. I didn't have to be a counselor. I didn't have to be helpful and useful to my children. I didn't have to, you know, take care of anything. It came to me, and um, I could receive it. And uh, I think all those other people would have come to me, but I couldn't bear it. And also, it's risky, isn't it? At a certain point of extremity, there's a risk in including someone else in the mix. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I was. Um, uh, you were saying your husband just let you do it, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> that sometimes is the best policy. Um, I mean, I was a year and a half past my first wife's death when I met my second wife. Just barely ready, really. Really. And um, what made it work was that she she didn't fight that getting involved with her was going to be a grief experience for me. Right. She she didn't try to, yeah, she didn't try to make that go away. I don't know that it would have worked otherwise. Right. <laughs> you know, she just said, you don't have to change the furniture right away, you know. <laughs> I mean, right, right. She, she Take the a lot of, of the space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, leave out the pictures nice. for now, you know. <laughs> um, so there's something um, very precious about that, isn't there? Just, just the simple message do whatever you need to do. Yeah, and, you know, pick the place where it's the least harmful. I mean, that's, there's that Buddhist do no harm, you know, the, the, it, which is actually, well, most my religion has that too. It's just, you know, I didn't want to hurt anyone, and I didn't want to hurt myself, and that was really the best I could do, and it turned out, you know, that that was fine, and, and um, that, that was nice for me to know that, and I like you, you know, you said you read a lot of mystery novels. I mean, I share my, my Kindle with a lot of friends, and I say, look, all those romance novels, that was from year one. Year two is the mystery novels. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of junk on my uh, good junk, but, you know, stuff that I, I had to have endings that were complete. I couldn't read literature. I couldn't read, you know, tangled, difficult um, poetic books. I, it's like you said, you couldn't read a grief a book about grief. I, I just needed things that I knew were going to end, that they were probably going to end well, and I was going to be fine reading them. And then when I, I, I remember watching The Good Wife, and it, it was the season when uh, Will, one of the main characters, was killed off. And I thought, I, you know, Swear word, swear word, swear word. Why didn't you warn me? I am grieving right now. We, if you had told me, I wouldn't have been watching your stupid show. You know, so it was it's <laughs> yes. like this extreme amount of emotion around television. So because because you know we do have a sympathetic nervous system and and it's real to our nervous system. Yeah, that's right. That's regardless right. of whether we know it's made up or not. That's right. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's good. It's good that that, you know, I, it's, I think that all our tools, right, have two faces. And that's one of the really wonderful things about television, too, is it's storytelling and sometimes storytelling at its best. And I needed stories. 
Like yeah, you were that, saying about your show, uh, is, you know, it's where we can come to tell our story. I I just went this last weekend, my, my daughter's stage managing a play in L.A., and I went to see it. Latina Christmas special. If anyone's in L.A., go see it. It's fantastic. Really fantastic. And uh, it, it's three comedians who do it, but they each tell a deeper story about, you know, it's funny, of course, they're comedians, but right, it's right. also deep in terms of um, the losses that come up at the holidays yeah. and how and how those get assimilated into uh, what we experience at those times. It was so refreshing, you know, to, to go to something that was about holidays and, and what's beautiful about them, of course, but also, you know what's painful right and to do it and, like you you know in a way that in my language that you could metabolize it. it it didn't just land on you like a big lump it was the comedy helped move it through exactly you know, in, in fire in the and, heart it's it's a lot of it is is the language and the music and and it's you know people tell their stories and then there's extraordinary music and so that you always taking the poetry of the language and taking it one step more resonant one step deeper one step more alive so then Aliveness comes along with the story, instead of just well. You know, I'm glad a big you. Turd. I'm glad you. I'm glad you circled us back around to that because at the same time you're saying you need to needed to go into a room and and just be alone with it and and not have to do anything. Obviously, it's also been a very productive, creative time for you. I know that's a real wonderful, horrible, great paradox. You know, is that I have created, uh, you know, two really important for me works of art and been part of a collective creating art around trauma. I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more extraordinary to have happened to me. So, huh? I think that sort of epitomizes something. I I believe that um, in order to uh, transform through grief. We need solitary time, and we need witness. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Um, I like we that. Ki- we kind of need both, don't we? Yeah. And you found a way to have both, both in the and both of them in the creative realm. Yeah, that's right. There was, you know, it's funny when I was um, in the very bad times when I was fifteen. There was a I was reading Saul Bellow, and there was just one line he had back then, and I. I remember writing it on a cast on my leg, hitch your agony to a star. And I mean, I was 15, and that, that's you know, a piece of beautiful writing that, that kind of became like, one of, like C.S. Lewis's rope for me. Hitch your agony to a hitch star. I, I love that. Star. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Oh, so beautiful. That's, yeah. That sort of captures the, the feeling, doesn't it? Yeah, and it doesn't take away the agony, and it doesn't take away the star. You know, you you have it's that paradoxical, alive place where you're both dead and alive at the same time. And you know, I guess I've been sitting here thinking it's it's a good it's good news about us as human beings that we register these experiences that are so big that we don't just kind of la dee da them yeah that that they are hard you know that's sort of our loving self that registers those things wouldn't you say yeah yeah i remember reading another book when i was a teenager it was um 
I think it was James Houston book, and he, and she's at Thanksgiving as a teenager, and they're talking about the Vietnam War, and, and everyone's just talking about it, la-di-da, and she stands up at the Thanksgiving table and starts to vomit. And I remember this, you know, I'm 15 years old, and I'm reading this, and I'm going, he got it, he got it, that's exactly how it feels, you know, as you're... you're it's important to vomit when bad things are happening. Yes. You know, <laughs> That's so, you're so both things are true. There's times when you want to make it, you know, just go flat and, and, and rest and, and just not have to be in it. And then there's times when it's got to wake up. And I'm, I'm slow at it. I'm really slow. I mean, even though I'm making great art, I don't know that I'm emotionally, um, I just don't know that I'm emotionally all the way back. And I don't know what that's going to look like anyway. Maybe this is it. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's check in in a year. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's been a delight to have you yeah, on. Yeah, my delight. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you having so a good much. conversation with me. Oh, me too. And and uh, listeners, once again, find Deborah Allen and her. find out about her show in March. I think it's in Santa Cruz, www.healersforum.com and www.janes-themovie.com. Next week, I'll welcome Tara Schumann, the author of Hope is a Good Breakfast and Other Humble Thoughts on My Cancer Journey, a memoir about her breast cancer diagnosis at age 32 and the changes it brought to her life as a professional, a wife, and a mother. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.